If you've been enjoying AMSA AdLib so far, please let others know about the show by giving it a rating in iTunes. Just visit amsa.org slash adlib for quick links to our reviews page, or you can just search for AMSA AdLib in the iTunes store. And don't miss any upcoming episodes. Be sure to subscribe today. Welcome to AMSA AdLib. This is Christine, and joining me here today is AdLib's Pete Thompson. Welcome to the show, Pete. Thanks, Christine. Um, So we're interested in learning a little bit more about students' clinical experiences in LGBT care, and you were telling me that you had the opportunity to sit down with someone this week. Sure thing. So I spoke with uh, Dr. Carl Street Jr., who is a third-year medical resident at Hopkins Bayview Medical Center. He is actually a past LGBT policy coordinator and liaison um, at the American Medical Student Association. And we spoke about students' experiences in LGBT care, and we talked uh, a little bit about what they're learning officially, and then especially kind of what they're learning off the books in the um, what you might call the hidden curriculum. Uh, and we also talked about students who themselves uh, come from one of the LGBT communities and how they experience training. Here's Carl. I'm Carl Street Jr. I'm a third year in internal medicine at Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center and one of the past AMSA LGBT policy coordinators and liaisons. What are some of the first clinical experiences med students are having uh, addressing LGBT issues? So. In terms of clinical experiences for medical students, so we're talking generally the third and fourth year of their medical school experience, they don't often have standardized experiences. They're not exposed explicitly to LGBT patients, um, and they're not often educated on these issues in didactic form or even short lectures, um, uh, which there's a lot of research on that. But in terms of clinical, there's opportunities for them. They might run into an LGBT Um, patient in the pediatrics uh, clerkship, Um, and oftentimes uh, there's a lot of issues around questioning sexual identity and gender identity as well. They might be exposed there. Um, And then a large part of what they deal with is just randomly hearing what their other supervisors might say about LGBT patients. Um, It's it's good and bad, um, unfortunately, and fortunately. There are still reports of students hearing disparaging remarks about LGBT patients. There are still reports of students witnessing what they think is substandard care. Um, So that's happening across the country. It's much better than it was, I would say, 5, 10, 20 years ago. Um, I know uh, Dr. Schuster, who's a pediatrician up in Boston, shares his experiences of a neurosurgeon even refusing to treat a patient because this neurosurgeon thought uh, the individual was a lesbian. No other reasoning. I think we're moving away from that kind of egregious care, but we, we every so often we have this, these issues in which is popping up in the hidden curriculum. So students, students absorb what's around them and then they might emulate it themselves. Is there a way students, when they hear those things, that they can be addressing that hidden curriculum directly? Or So, that's, so that kind of gets into the dynamic of student and supervisor. There's a huge power dynamic within medicine. We, we enjoy our hierarchy, uh, unfortunately. Um, it's a matter of how empowered does the student feel to actually speak up and speak truth to authority. Um, they can either say, hey, I think that's wrong, or or sometimes I advise students, like, you are a student, play that up. You're like, I'm just learning here. What do you mean when you said that? Or how, how, do, how would you approach this particular situation? Um, and then, of course, ideally, uh, deans of student affairs um, provide a variety of mechanisms to help facilitate change around this. But again, it starts at empowering the students. So in terms of the, of the kind of training students are getting preclinically, so before yeah. they're even going in, can you go into a little more detail on sort of what, what they're getting or not? Right. So 
so we're talking about the didactic, the first two years, the pretty much mainly lecture-based, but uh, recognizably getting more skills-based as well. Um, the lectures are completely lacking. We've known this for years. There was a great study coming out of the Medical Education Research Group at Stanford, um, pretty much highlighting the fact that there are very few didactic hours around LGBT issues. And oftentimes, whenever anybody counts the hours, it's around HIV and sexually transmitted illnesses. So we think, oh, we're talking about HIV, therefore we can talk about gay men, and we got our credit for that, um, which is uh, a horrible way to approach it. Um, we, we do try and train people to be a little bit more algorithmic, to say, if this, then that. Um, but we need to recognize there are a lot of issues around sexual orientation and gender identity that are not encompassed in just HIV and STIs. So the didactic time, the first two years, is completely lacking. Um, other opportunities, though, where um, that sexual orientation, gender identity can be addressed uh, is with standardized patients. There are some new models coming out about how to train students before they deal with the clinic about how to address uh, sexual orientation, gender identity. Um, the uh, AAMC uh, med medication portal, MedEd portal, um, has a great uh, standardized patient around this. Um, a lot of different institutions are trying to develop their own standardized patients around this. Um, so it's, it's a curriculum that is lacking but is growing now that people recognize it as as an issue. Is there something, is there a resource that students can be turning to if they, if they're, say their mm -hmm. institution's not great or they sort of Which think that a lot of institutions. Yeah. If they, if their institution isn't kind of getting it done, I mean, is mm -hmm. there some place they can be turning to? So, um, Naturally, one place I'd definitely turn people to is the American Medical Student Association. There's been a long history of addressing LGBT issues. Uh, there's a large amount of resources on the webpage. Uh, the American Medical Association has an LGBT advisory committee that actually works on policies and education materials as well. Uh, they have a resource page. Uh, GLAMA, uh, GLMA, uh, its uh, tagline is uh, Health Professionals Advancing LGBT Equality, has been doing this for over three decades, um, and they also have wonderful resources. They're the largest and oldest um, LGBT medical association, essentially. Uh, so there are a lot of resources out there to turn to. Um, I would say once you have those in hand, is then going to your deans and saying, this is what needs to be done. So to sort of take that and then try to get it spread more broadly or to point exactly. out the whole. Okay. Uh, the, the, a lot of these resources are more offering legitimacy around the topic as opposed to saying, oh, this is what, what the students want. This is just a student issue. There are professional associations behind teaching LGBT issues. So it's no more, it's not as easily brushed aside as just a student issue. This is something that the Joint Commission wants. This is something that the AAMC wants and so forth. So um, there's a lot of legitimacy about approaching these topics. Earlier on, you mentioned that the things have been changing a lot over the last 15 years, mm -hmm. and it seems like there are a lot of the, these big-name groups that, mm -hmm. are, that are sort of pushing the curriculum change. Why is that? So I've only been in training for about a decade, so I only have about that much experience to really look into. Um, it's, it seems to be happening more as the research is coming out. There has been research on LGBT populations for a good deal of time, like really robust data, especially since the 90s, um, um, and it just seems to be cannibalizing, which is great. Um, it's why those organizations are paying attention now is that people actually started bringing it up, um, and it was it was no longer data that could be ignored. Um, the Institutes of Medicine has a great report on that that came out in the late 2000s, addressing the fact that we have we have research. It is not the level of research in terms of the quantity that we'd want, but it is enough to say that something has to change. Um, and with that, again, another institution, large institution providing legitimacy behind this, a lot of these other organizations are like, well, let's take this opportunity and do something about it. Um, 
and I would say probably in the last few years, more in terms of the public sphere and public consciousness around LGBT issues, people are paying attention more. Um, the Times has had a wonderful headline saying the trans tipping point with Laverne Cox on the cover. We've known about um, LNG individuals in, through the media, through, of course, the, the cliche of saying Will and Grace and Ellen, but those do move the conversation forward. Um, so that's, those are some of the ideas of why this is happening now. In terms of, of medical students who themselves come from uh, one of the LGBT communities, mm-hmm. how are they experiencing training? So medical education has been trying to diversify the physician pool. Like We have a lot of uh, white, cisgender, straight guys out there who are doctors and they're high up. We want to shift that. Um, to recognize that our patient population is diverse, our, our healthcare workforce should be equally diverse. Um, LGBT students coming in are coming into an environment that is overwhelmingly uh, cisgendered and heterosexual. Um, and that can be a little abrupt, especially depending on where they're coming from, from their own experiences. Um, and as such, sometimes they feel the need to go back in the closet during their medical training because they fear discrimination. That's one way they experience, experience uh, the, uh, the medical uh, training uh, aspect of it. Um, and then, of course, they're seeing, they're hearing about conversations about particular patient populations, but they're never hearing about their own, the, the gay, gay individuals, lesbian individuals, bisexual and trans. They're not hearing about those populations. So, again, another, another layer of where they might feel like they're being neglected. Um, and then, as we, we had mentioned, touched on uh, about the hidden curriculum, the idea that they might be hearing disparaging remarks. Um, these are all opportunities to where they can have positive experiences, so where they can come to an institution where they're like, oh, there's an outlist, there's a list of providers and students who identify as part of the LGBT communities and are willing to be contacted to be mentors. That's one opportunity where they do have positive experiences, and there are more institutions building those kind of lists. Um, The curriculum, where they hear um, discussions around trans identity where it's not pathologized, where like, this is gender identity, this is how we approach individuals with gender identity um, uh, issues as they're transitioning. Talking about it in a positive, affirming way it also makes it more positive, a more positive, affirming experience for the learner. Um, and it's it's the it's clinical, it's standards of care, like that's what it should be like. Um, and and then there are a variety of structural things: having non-discrimination policies, having social events that celebrate diversity that include sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, students are having these positive experiences, but they do still have some of the negative experiences. So it's I think we're transitioning from negative to more positive. Um, and each institution has uh, many different opportunities to improve that experience. It's not worth thinking that nothing's wrong if you're not hearing it, because oftentimes these students, are, like I said, could either be closeted or don't want to be bringing it up. So institutions should really take the initiative and not wait for students to bring it up. Um, so LGBT students, like a variety of students, have uh, positive and negative experiences that we can make more positive. What efforts are out there in curriculum reform to improve the educational climate? Curriculum reform, the idea of what is the didactic, what is the specific um, clinical experience, that that requires, uh, that, has, that has been happening through particular committees and through different organizations that, that address medical education. So we've talked about the AAMC having an entire set of recommendations built around co- uh, medical competencies that address uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. That addresses curriculum reform. There are committees at particular institutions that are integrating LGBT issues. That's a curriculum reform effort. Um, and and then, of course, students themselves have been advocating for the addition of uh, a particular topics around sexual orientation, gender identity into their curriculum. Those, that's the reform side. How that, as 
how that affects climate, which ble- which curriculum reform and, and climate experience are, are united, is that by having those topics in the curriculum, uh, LGBT students and, and, and cisgender and, and straight students can have a more positive experience. Additional efforts around climate, though, of course, include um, celebrating LGBT diversity. So either having a pride event or a national coming out day event or recognizing Trans Day of Remembrance significantly improves the climate uh, for LGBT students and their and their straight and cisgender colleagues um, because it celebrates the diversity. It's, it recognizes this important part of our patient population um, without pathologizing it or without or approaching it from a non-judgmental perspective, which is how clinicians really should, should be approaching their patients. Um, additional climate, of course, is providing support for LGBT students, recognizing that sometimes they are coming from um, different hardships. Sometimes students are kicked out of their home or had particular hardships growing up um, that others did not. Um, so recognizing that and maybe providing additional support um, or financial support where there was lacking before. Um, other climate issues, of course, are um, having out faculty actually talking about their own experiences, either being out as a student trainee or or forward, um, or being able to at least host students and and say you are welcome to a commun- community at your institution that celebrates LGBT diversity. When you were speaking about the hidden curriculum, mm-hmm. you know, students overhearing something that's not appropriate or they're not maybe they don't know, but they think right. it might be. Is there disproportionate pressure? On, on the LGBT students to sort of ad- address it? Oh, it's it's kind of the same idea as like, oh, you have one black student in a class, please answer for your entire your entire race identity. Like that's that's often a pressure minority students, minority broadly, minority students feel when a topic comes up. Um, the number of times that I had to answer on specific issues for gay men because I was one of the few people out um, was one of those examples. Uh, it's it's something that a student who is choosing to be out um, will need to recognize that that's probably what's going to happen. That that happens in every every dynamic and every situation, regardless of whether it's health or what have you, in any other inter- industry or profession, um, is that um, minority people often have to speak on behalf of their community. The danger the 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 important thing is to recognize when you are not speaking for you can't speak for your entire community and nobody should expect you to. Um, but if you're seeing some sort of injustice or some sort of slight or, or discrimination, um, you should, as safely as possible, feel empowered to speak up against it um, or to say thank you for, or thank somebody for being positive as well. It is a added responsibility in these kind of settings. For students who are put in that position, mm-hmm. is, there, is there a way to introduce that idea that, you know, is there a preamble that they can give that's like, I can't speak, and, and to sort of not, <laughs> not only like sort of address the injustices, yeah. but then also sort of also plant the seed that maybe I can't, that maybe you shouldn't be just singling me out. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, I, sometimes I lead into it and I, like I joke and be like, well, let me answer, let, let me answer for the millions of people across the country. Like mm-hmm. it's like a little tongue in cheek. Um, I think the preamble, I wish we didn't have to use the preamble, it should be self-evident that you are an individual and you're not speaking for everybody, but you can you can be very explicit saying, saying, based on my experience, I can't speak for everyone else, but on my experience, that makes me feel this way, or this could actually be done better this way. Um, or from my experience, I wish I had a doctor that had done that. Again, affirming or correcting as needed. It, it is just important to don't get it in the head that you are the spokesperson. 
it's a little dangerous. Can you talk me th- through the sort of range, the spectrum mm-hmm. of um, of the sort of interest, institutional in, like learning environments? I mean, mm-hmm. kind of what's the range? Yeah. So. What I would still consider like controversial topics like this, LGBT is still controversial, um, although becoming less so, that you're going to run into environments that are overwhelmingly supportive and have their stuff together and they know what they're talking about and are leading the charge. And then you're going to have on the far end people and institutions that are hostile, that are going to stand in your way, going to explicitly discriminate and what have you. And then they're somewhere in between. Um, and then there, of course, there are apathetic institutions as well. Um, it's been my experience that apathetic institutions are kind of the hardest to deal with because they're not overtly against you, but they're also not providing any support or any uh, any recognition of the issue. Uh, so trying to get things moving when there's apathy can be very hard. That's when I feel inertia is gets in the way the most. In those situations, I always recommend looking outside your institution. For apathetic institutions, I recommend looking outside of that and getting involved in other organizations like AMSA, AAMC, AMA. These are all organizations that are going to welcome you on this topic and provide you opportunities to either bring resources back to your institution or or work on a more uh, national level. Um, dealing with institutions that are hostile to very supportive, I find them very similar because they're both moving very quickly. Um, and oftentimes when an institution is hostile, you have a lot of, you have an incident or you have a particular um, event that allows you to rally around that and pool a whole bunch of resources locally and nationally. Um, any student who's ever been discriminated against for their LGBT identity um, will find very quickly that there's a lot of ins- or, uh, institutions and organizations that are gonna wanna back them up. Um, and that there is now more recourse for them um, from accrediting bodies for hospitals and schools for curriculum um, mandates as well. So hostile institutions, I think, are on the decline, but when they happen, they're going to feel a significant pushback um, from within their own community. Um, For those that are very supportive and and kind of leading the charge, that might be an opportunity for students to think outside the box. Like, you don't have to do LGBT 101 anymore, so you can start thinking more specifically, how do we train our students who want to go into pediatrics about um, uh, uh, puberty-blocking hormones? How do we teach them about the actual endocrine guidelines around uh, transitioning care or the specific uh, body image issues around gay and lesbian individuals, um, you get to go a little bit deeper into these topics and don't have to do just 101. 101 is very important. A lot of institutions need 101. But um, for institutions that have done that and have done a really good foundation, you can now move on to the 202 levels. You can move forward on that. Um, So I would say if you're in one of those great institutions that is leading the charge on this, take advantage of that. Um, Don't feel discouraged that they've already done everything you're thinking about. This gives you a chance to think about what's next. In terms of the the schools uh, or institutions, I guess, that are resistant, so I would say Mm -hmm. on on that end of the spectrum, are they... um, for medical students, especially getting into medical school or whatever, I mean, it's hard. It might be a little hard to kind of vote with your feet. I mean, yeah. so, I mean, should they be pre-screening the institutions and kind of making choices up front? Or? Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, because you, you're right. Not everybody gets to be that lucky student who has 20 offers and they get to pick amongst those. That's, that's, that's a uh, fortunate position for a few people. Um, the screening process um, is still informal. Um, we don't have uh, up-to-date um, climate surveys of different medical schools around LGBT. We've, we've done that. We've tried doing that. It's hard to keep it up-to-date. Um, I know AMSA had used to try and do that, and I think that started a decade ago, and it's hard to keep that updated. Um, it's worth doing your interviews if, if that is a very important topic to you and, and you 
don't want to feel like you have to go back in the closet, you should be open during your interviews. Maybe not on your application if you are worried about that. If you are worried that they're gonna, you're going to be discriminated against, you can always bring it up during your interview to see what the response is going to be. And I always recommend asking, uh, asking another student at the institution you're interviewing what their thoughts are, how have they experienced it, because um, there will probably more than likely be an informal network. Um, when I interviewed at my medical school, um, I was very much out in my application. I was out during my interview, and my interview said this is some, my interviewer very specifically said this is somewhere where you can be out. And during my revisit at that institution, when I was trying to decide, that same interviewer actually had me meet other LGBT individuals from the institution to talk about it. Um, so when you bring it up, you have an opportunity to get a feel for what the climate's really like. Um, so I, again, if you feel empowered, I would recommend doing it. Um, if not, if you don't feel like it's safe to be out, if you're worried about being discriminated against, you really need to get into a school and you almost don't care what the climate's going to be like, it's so worth looking into what you're going to be facing when you're, once you're there. Um, I, you, you don't want to go into a situation where you're... If, if you know there have been students that have been kicked out for their identity or who've had very difficult times or have felt like they have not um, advanced as far as they could or have been supported as much as they could be because of their LGBT identity, you really got to think hard. Is that a place you want to be at? Um, and and then, of course, if you want to be in those that, that particular institution, and you can be the squeaky wheel. You can be the one who can try and create change. So um, I think it's always worth looking into what the climate's like. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's value uh, for students who are, say, straight, whether there's value in them kind of doing that s- a similar kind of evaluation and, and, and like whether, because they as a group could maybe more um, apply pressure. So, so th- I was looking into this recently for a publication. There is some research showing that places that are more accepting <laughs> of LGBT individuals, um, their cisgender and straight colleagues benefit as well. Um, and oftentimes, uh, it creates just a more welcoming environment. People feel much more collaborative and as such, learn better. Um, I don't. I haven't seen if this affects scores. I haven't seen how this affects specialties or what have you, but it, it, it seems to be a subjective or uh, better experience for everybody. Um, and then when you need to um, address certain institutions that aren't doing that, um, it's again worth asking around saying if there's a straight uh, ally group or if there or if there's any organization that would be more supportive um, like the student national medical association snma was very helpful in some of our initiatives um, in my medical school so um, looking around and seeing how you can form collaborations um, the lgbt uh, communities have been very good about advocating for themselves it's always worth forming collaborations and searching for allies as well in terms of, of when medical students are then ready to move on to residency, I mean, should they be evaluating, I don't know, residency programs in sort of a similar fashion? I mean, what are the considerations there? So, again, that's kind of what uh, you as an individual would want from your career, from your training. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you don't want to go somewhere where you don't feel like you're going to be welcome or you're not going to get the most support because I would – and some of my mentors have put it this way, like your your medical school, your residence and your fellowship, especially your residence and your fellowship, they say should be some of your more selfish times. Like these are your opportunities to really get ahead in your field um, and to have as much support as possible. So you don't want to waste your time at a fellowship that isn't going to allow you to be your full self or a residency that's going to be discriminating against you or your partner or what have you um, around your identity. So looking into that during residency is really important. Um, 
And that being said, it's uh, I would argue don't be out in your application for the sake of just being out. Um, but if it if it adds to your experience, if it adds to your um, your ability to get into the residency, definitely bring it up. If you've been a leader in an organization, highlight that. Um, if they ask you describe a experience uh, some experience of discrimination, don't hesitate to talk about any discrimination you might have expe- experienced around your sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, and that those kind of um, programs will let you know whether they're supportive or not. Uh, um, and again, it's a matter of how empowered do you feel about bringing that information up and exposing yourself to potential discrimination, but also exposing yourself to amazing institutions that want you, uh, both because of or regardless of your sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and kind of moving forward, I uh, I, I made, did the same calculus again when I was looking at fellowships. I'm planning on doing a career in LGBT health, um, and I, I wasn't going to waste my time doing interviews at places that weren't interested in that. So I was very explicit in my career goals, very explicit in what I've already done around LGBT health, um, and, and only got interviews from places that were interested. Some of those places were... Um, Everybody was very interested in doing LGBT health. Some didn't know what to do with it, but they were happy to help. Others were like, we've done a little bit. We'd love to do more. Um, And had I not been out or had I not been very explicit in what I wanted to do, I would not have been able to make a well-informed decision. Um, So there there are more and more opportunities around this as a career choice even. And what are some of those kind of career options really? So... There are still, um, so I guess there are different ways to break this down. So you can stay in academics. Staying in academics, I think, is still great. Um, uh, And there's still a lot of areas around LGBT health um, that need to be researched, that need to be taught, that need to be addressed within our medical education system. Um, But that also means you can focus on the patient experience. You can try and improve your own institution and and national institutions around LGBT health as a career. Um, you can also work at an LGBT health center. Uh, we're here, we're interviewing in Baltimore. There's Chase Brexton. I'm from Chicago, where there's Howard Brown, and it can rattle them all off. There's there's a lot of different uh, LGBT health specific organizations across the country um, that value and want providers who are competent in LGBT health. Um, so those are additional opportunities, and you can rise up in those situations as well. Public health departments really really like people who do LGBT health because um, historically. Um, Again, there's not not great data around this. This is my this is anecdotal. People I know who've done focus on LGBT health um, seem to have a much broader view of uh, social determinants of health, which is what public health departments really want to focus on. So, again, multiple opportunities there. And then, depending on the national climate um, within D.C., there are a lot of opportunities within government organizations, DHHS, Department of Health and Human Services. Um, uh, centers for Medicare and Medicaid uh, services are also developing programs on LGBT health. Have had them, but they're developing new ones as well. So again, career opportunities there are, um, are, are ripe for the picking at this point. Um, so many opportunities. This has been really great. Good. If you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe to AMSA AdLib through iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the show, please give us a rating in the iTunes store. AMSA AdLib is brought to you by the American Medical Student Association. I'm your host, Christine Camizio. This episode was produced by Pete Thompson and myself with help from Carol Clark. Joshua Caulfield is the show's executive producer, and Dr. Deborah Hall is AMSA's national president. Let us know what topics you'd like to hear covered on AMSA AdLib. Email us at adlib at amsa.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and thank you for listening. AMSA Pre-Med Fest will not look, feel, or sound like any other pre-med conference because it is not a conference. 
Join us in Plant City, Florida on January 30th and spend time with Patch Adams, our Master of Ceremonies, as he helps you discover the thrill of helping others. Early bird registration closes January 10th. For more information, visit amsapremedfest.org.